All right, so Job, if you missed last week, don't worry. All we did last week was repeat the week before because I felt like the week before was choppy. So we just, we did change the format, but we did literally redo the exact same passage. So you, if you missed a week, and I say that because there was like eight people here last week. So most, many of us did miss last time. So you didn't really miss anything other than just kind of rehashing out um, the, the progression in particular of the, I know my Redeemer lives passage that the Job utters in Job 19. So that's, if you're following with the narrative so far, that Job 19 story where Job responds with, I wish my words would be written down, and which is, I always find that comical because we're literally reading them. Um, I wish they were written down. I know my Redeemer lives, and yet my flesh, after it's faded, yet in my flesh, I will see him face to face. It's this glorious picture of the resurrection in an otherwise hopelessly seeming depressing context, Job concludes the resurrection is his hope. And he didn't have a solid, well, we've got the New Testament, we've got Revelation, we've got 1 Corinthians 15, we have the work of the gospel, Jesus conquering death. Job had the faithfulness of God. That's all he knew. And he was still able to, from that belief alone, surmise or deduct, deduce, yeah, deduct would be like taking away, deduce, um, that there would be something after this. There would be a judgment. And judgment means there's going to be a vindication, which means for God to be just, something else has to happen. There has to be another piece to the story. So as we kind of work towards that, let's just try to quickly, we've recounted the story of Job a number of times so far. So I feel like you've been following with us, or if you've read Job, you've got these scenes set well. So the first two chapters are in a very narrative form. And then the rest of the book until the last chapter is poetry. And the narrative part is incredibly easy because what happens in the narrative part is what the narrative part says. When you get to the poetry part, what happens is (laughs) the culmination of working out the imagery and the flowery language and the repetition and the structure. So that's admittedly harder to read. And so we've been taking it instead of verse by verse, more of a kind of thought by thought Perspective. So let's just do the quick review of that so we can kind of see where Job is right now. So I didn't put any blanks in that section. That first section should be all filled in for you. And I made it run like a, it's like a script of a movie because that's essentially how that works. There's just different, this is the speaking part, speaking part, speaking part. And I just gave the basic idea of what each person is saying. And if in italics, that's a quotation from the section. So just the first scene, chapter one, Satan tests Job by taking all his children, possessions, and servants. That's the first narrative. You remember that. It's God's idea. He presents Job to Satan. Satan says he's only worshiping you because of his stuff. And he loses everything except his wife, three servants, and his health. And when the when all is said and done, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan clearly loses round one. There's no question whatsoever. Round two, we don't know how much time has passed. Presumably some. It's not the next day. Some time has passed, and Job sells his health, sells his wife. I guess those three servants may still be with him. We don't know. Um, But round happens again. God says he's, Job is faithful, even though he's done evil to him without cause. And Satan says, well, take that hedge and make it smaller. So God does except he makes it where Job can't die, but Satan can do whatever else. So Jaden, Satan, Jaden. That was somehow in my brain a combination of Job and Satan. So they're not the same party, and they're not on the same team. But uh, Job um, gets so sick, he's, of course, scraping the flesh off of his body with a pot shard, which is just a really a disgusting image of, of how grotesque he's become. And his wife says, just curse God and die. She says... Or he says to her, you're speaking like a fool. Um, and then he asks her a question. And it's really a generic question, not to her specifically, but really for us as well. And what's that question? Will we receive good from God and not Right. If he's, if he's the master, if he's the king, if he's the Lord, then what should you take from your master, your Lord, your king? Whatever he gives. Whatever role he asks you to play, you will take it. And that's his question. You're, she said, he says, you're speaking like the fool, which in Hebrew, a fool specifically is what ideology? The fool says, there is no God. There is no God. So it's an atheistic worldview. And the idea just simply comes down to, is God God or is he not? 
Job's saying if you show disloyalty to God, you're really performing the work of a fool, which in modern English we might say just the work of atheism. But instead, you should be performing the work of loyalty to the Lord. So Satan clearly loses both rounds here. The friends show up, spend time with Job, don't say anything. So at this point, for at least seven full days, they are doing the perfect work of grief counseling, which involved them doing what? Nothing but being there. That's all they did. Well, he's there. Not yet. He's going to do that in the chapter four. So far in chapter two, they don't do anything. They're, they're doing it right by saying they're just, they're just silent. Then Job opens his mouth. So he does, in a sense, invite the criticism. Um, and then we get that wonderful, beautiful, we sing songs about it, sound of chapter three. I say that in jest. We're not going to get excited about singing what happens in chapter three, where Job curses his birth. He does it in an incredibly poetic, dramatic woe is me language and there's basically nothing positive in that entire verse uh, jeremiah later quotes from this um part of scripture to after he had jeremiah experienced a lot of suffering as well and so it just shows he's one of the things getting jeremiah through is relating to job and job chapter three so it's really a blessing that we you know you have that season of absolute torment absolute terror you know, we might use the expression, I'm just going through hell right now. Um, well, we got a passage to go to. Just go quote Job. I feel like you can get that lament. I'm out of your system. But it's there. So that's what Job does. In response to that, we now get the bulk of the book, which is each of the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, are going to respond to Job. And then Job, in turn, will respond to each of them. So we've done one and a half of the cycles then we're going to do two more pieces of the cycle tonight when we get there. But the, just real quick, the basic cycle is like this. Eliphaz says, the innocent don't suffer, and you reap what you sow. Now, of course, he's thinking from today to the time you die, limited time scope. Now, of course, we know you reap what you sow is a biblical principle. That, that's in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. But it is not a hard fast every time. And which is one of the arguments Job, the book of Job is trying to make, is that oftentimes it is, in fact, the innocent that do suffer. But Eliphaz says, the innocent don't suffer, and you reap what you sow. So in other words, what's he telling Job? It's your fault. Your fault. You did something, clearly. Something's wrong. There's suffering in your life. If we dig around and look behind the curtain, you did something, and you deserve it. Of course, what we know the actual, we do look behind the curtain, fully, truly, because we get the first two chapters, and... What's the reality? Given from God's perspective, there's no man like Job. Job is as righteous as they come, blameless and upright before the Lord. And then he literally says he harmed Job without cause. So there's there's nothing in Job's life. So Job responds. Of course, we're just summarizing the, the chapters here. I've done nothing wrong, but God has broken me. Job makes a big, strong emphasis that it is the hand of the Lord that has done this work. That's a big deal for Job all the way through. God is the one doing this. And part of what's going on there is Job, in saying that, is maintaining his faithfulness to the Lord. Not that he's happy with the Lord. He's, in fact, he gets increasingly frustrated. The more he gets frustrated with the friends, really the more that frustration also gets turned vertically. But at no point does Job think anybody is on the throne other than the Lord. And the Lord, if this is what the Lord wants to do, it's what he's going to do. I can't stop him. I don't like what he's doing. I'd love to go to heaven, beat on his door, and have my case with him. But who is man? I, I can't do that. He's the Lord. And so it's it's anger, it's frustration, but it is loyalty. It's, it's a certain kind of faithfulness. Um, Bildad responds, God is just. Of course, Job wouldn't disagree with that. But the way Bildad means it is he would never let the innocent suffer. Hint, what? Job, you're not innocent. Job, you're, God, if you were who you say you are, God is the kind of God, he would never let that happen. Of course, we know the background. We know that's exactly what God has let happen. Out of God's own mouth, he's doing this without cause. Job responds, I'm in the right, and there is not an arbiter between God and man. So he's not thinking, we, we immediately jump to the New Testament, think about Christ as the mediator between God and man. And really, even in Job's case, that's not even what he's talking about. 
His idea, an arbiter is the guy who stands above the two parties that are fighting. So who can stand above the two parties between Job and God and tell you which one is right or wrong? Nobody. There's nobody that can be the arbiter over God where God's standing at the the defense post or what do you call it in the courtroom? You got the, 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 I've lost my words. God is the one in the judge seat. He, he's never a de- defendant. That's what I was trying to say. He, he's not the defendant. He doesn't come down and sit there. And there's nothing you could do in all of creation and all of your wildest imagination that ever put God anywhere in that courtroom other than on the judge's seat. And that's what Job is saying. Um, I'm in the right. I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> so he's in one sense saying, but God has wronged me, but he's still the one sitting on the throne. And I just, there's nothing I can do about it. You can't, you can't put God in the wrong. So Zophar responds, Job, you deserve more punishment than you have received. And I think that the literal verse, it's, it's like the Lord of the Rings thing. I always like the quote, but it's uh, your, your guilt. Exa- God exacts less of you than your guilt deserves. And it's like, you, you deserve worse. That's all he's really saying, which is pretty bold because from Zophar's perspective, what's the sin that Job has committed? I don't have any idea. He's just guessing. It's pretty presumptuous to say you deserve worse. I can imagine someone saying that if they knew what you did. They, they're, they're comparing it to the specific evil thing you did. Well, I don't know what you did or if you did anything, but I know you deserve worse. That doesn't even mean anything. Eventually. We'll get, that'll actually happen in the text tonight. But so far, no, because they don't have any idea. I think they're kind of waiting for Job to spill the beans. At some point, Job is going to... Okay, well, when I was 12, <laughs> you know, but he doesn't have a story. What, I mean, I think most of us do, which makes... I know at times Job is a little unrelatable because we do know that some of our suffering is our fault, that I did do something stupid, and this is the repercussions of the stupid thing that I do. But at the same time, we can look back and say... There's lots of things that happen in our lives that are not directly tied to what we've done wrong. Um, we, we did this in Hebrews. We were reading the discipline of the Lord. is not punishment. It's, it's discipline. And it's not necessarily corrective. A lot of times it's only instructive. And it may feel bad, but it's still designed by God for our benefit, even if we don't like it. And so we, we can relate to that even if we can't relate to the righteousness of Job. All right, so that was Hubudu. That was... Uh, so far? Yes. All right, yeah. So Job responds, and, and at this point he's getting pretty angry. Those who are at peace despise those who suffer. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about that last week. We didn't emphasize it well the week before, so I wanted to come back and hit it. And that's the idea is when you're comfortable, when someone suffers, that makes you uncomfortable. And you start, we just have a tendency to do this, especially in our culture, we immediately start thinking of all the reasons it's their fault. I mean, I know I, I jumped to this with you know the homeless community because I know a lot of those guys are there because of addictions and poor choices, and they chose to worship something that caused this. And so I immediately I see them suffer. It's like, eh, your fault, bud. All right, but that's what Job's getting at here, and he's using it in the context of the friends looking at Job. They see Job suffer, and they're immediately okay. Well, there's. This is Job's fault. And why do we make that claim? Why do we want to make sure it's their fault they're suffering? That makes sense. I think it's more complicated, though, than it, I think that's part of it. If it's their fault, then we don't have to help them. I think it lowers our culpability. We don't feel as responsible. If you hit your own hammer, uh, your own thumb with a hammer, you know, I, I don't have to stop what I'm doing and help you. You're just an idiot. You know, that's, that's your fault. But if... I mean, like Hurricane Katrina comes through, and now that one's so dramatic, it even stirs compassion. And people are helping each other in all sorts of ways. But then when I'm at peace, though, like when we all have Hurricane Katrina, it's one thing. When I'm going about my day, my day's good, and your day's terrible, you're kind of inconvenient to me. You know what I'm saying? You've, you've had the emotion whether we want to want it or not. And that's what Job's saying there. Uh, the people who are at peace despise those who suffer. And then he switches in the next chapter. I think it's actually chapter 13 in that portion. And he enters like this role of prophet and says, actually, 
God is going to judge you for your partiality. Which is funny because Job, he's, he's mad at God because of what's happened. But when God's activity is questioned and he legitimately sees sin in his three friends and it's arrogant sin, what's he start doing? He starts, he starts preaching. You know, he's, God, you, you need to repent. And that's essentially how the chapter ends. It's, guys, you, you show impartiality. God is going to judge that. You're looking down on the wheat. And he just assumes if they're doing it to him, they've probably been doing it back home. And they, they might be guilty of more than we see. So Job actually, he, he's so faithful to the Lord here that he actually becomes the Lord's prophet in their lives. When they're there to comfort him and get him to repent, he turns around and he ends up being the one preaching the word to them. I just that's, That whole section is fascinating to me. Of course, we get in the middle of that. He, we get that expression he makes. It says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. So he has no doubt God is slain. I always want to say slays. Anybody know the grammar of that well enough? Though he slays me. But in the, in the Bible, it's always slay. There's no S ever. This just bothers me. Okay, anyway. Though God do that. Is it? It just feels wrong. Am I too southern? Maybe. I mean, it's probably translated. And it is the English standard version. So I guess so. Anyway, so though he slay me, I will hope in him. So what's the idea of hope there? What's Job expressing? I mean, God may be killing me, but I'm going to hope in him. Hope in him for what? Redemption. God's, God is going to show everyone that I was right in the end. But that's what's ultimately going to lead to Job, what he says in 19. So let's keep going. So Aliphaz says, uh, you... Okay, it was like 6 o'clock in the morning when I typed this in a hotel room this morning. <laughs> so let me read this sentence real quick and then tell you what it meant to say. Okay, I think I think I thought of two different ways to say it and typed both of them. So um, you suffer like the wicked. Therefore, you must be of the wicked. That's essentially how that whole chapter runs. Um, that, so Eliphaz is just saying um, the wicked go through life like this and then God pulls the rug out from under them well Job it looks kind of like you went through life like that and God pulled out the rug so again no hard evidence now he does at that point start somebody said it a minute ago start to make false accusations so we'll read in there well actually we'll get that more clearly in, in 20 so we'll get there in a second All right, then build it. let's see Job the witness of my righteousness is in heaven. But then he has this lingering question. If I go to Sheol, though, what hope is there for me? Because what's Sheol in the Old Testament? It's, it's really it's the generic term for in the grave. And so there's at times in the Old Testament you read it, and it sounds like, well, you just go to the grave. That's it. That's all there is. And Job's kind of having this moment of questioning. It's like, wait, wait, wait. I hope in the Lord. My witness is in heaven, but if I go to Sheol, and that's the end, I mean, where's my hope? And he doesn't really answer the question before the next person starts to speak. And so Bildad comes in and says, you speak like a man who doesn't know God. And the way he does it is he lists all these things a person who doesn't know God would do. And basically he's just describing Job. He's just setting it up in a clever way to describe Job. And then Job responds, and this is where we finally get that, that statement. So God has done this to me without cause, but I know he will redeem me in the end. And then he makes a statement, I know my Redeemer will live, this hope of some afterlife. And so for Job, it only makes sense if God is just, and if he has hope, he has reason to have hope in the Lord, then God in some way is going to right these wrongs, even if it's after the grave. And of course, that, that's exactly the point. All right, so with all that, let's uh, jump into chapter 20. Job chapter 20. So we are picking up with Zophar. So technically, this is the end of the second cycle. So all three friends will speak to Job in a cycle. So it'll be Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, Bildad, then Job's just mad and it's not going to finish anymore. So, But you'll see, that'll, that'll happen in a minute. So Can let's go question? to... Do I? Can I ask a question? Yeah. So <clears throat> when he said, if I go to Sheol, what hope is there for me? And then later, 
and maybe before I don't. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm saying. He working out. He's his, working it out. Is literally what we're saying. So historically, think about Job as one of the oldest narratives in the Jewish worldview. So, I mean, this is one of the first things God is inspiring and giving to His people is this story. And I think that's fascinating because the content. Now Moses might have written stuff down earlier, mm-hmm. but technically the the content of this story is. Now I don't believe Job and his friends were speaking to one another in poetry. I think this is a this is how the story is told. But whenever the story happens, I mean it probably got written down in the Kingdom era, but the story happens during Abraham's time, somewhere during. We don't know when. Just. It's, it's Canaanite. There's Canaanite gods referenced in the text. So it's clearly Canaanite text. So this is one of the first times God's people are working this theology out. And then eventually it's in, in, written in the inspired version of, that we have of Job. And so I'm saying Job does not start with a clear picture of the resurrection. And in this moment of clarity, in chapter 19, it's like light bulb goes off. There's something else. And then, of course, this is this is kind of like step one theologically in God's revelation. By the time we get the book of Revelation, we have a very clear picture of the resurrection and what that is. So what I'm emphasizing is really this idea of the resurrection. In secular theology, when they try to look at Christianity, they say Christianity is who input resurrection into Judaism. And I'm saying if you look at it, they're working this in literally in the first narrative. At the very beginning... This is part of how God's people are receiving the narrative from from God. All right, so yeah, so it's being progressed. I'm saying he didn't know, and now he does. Does that answer the question? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right, so chapter 20. Uh, let's let's read through this. Yeah, we're good on time. So let's read through um, this. And so remember, as we go through poetry, it's not important that you understand every verse. Though I mean, increasingly, the more you study a book, the more you want to make sense of each piece because these narratives in this poetry form it's kind of like it's more of like large thought blocks and as long as you find in one of those pieces the main idea then you're going to be fine so it's like if you watch a movie you ever realize you don't catch all the dialogue but you still knew what happened you don't have to get that's why i like watching the movie two or three times the third or fourth time you start to see things and realize there was stuff going on in the background and oh man they even emphasized that i totally missed it well you got the story the first time it just got richer the more you watched it so so as we go through if you feel like i'm i just don't see what that paragraph is that's fine just see the big picture as long as you see the big picture you're in a good spot so let's uh let's see what zophar is saying so zophar the namite or name namathite answered and said therefore my thoughts answer me because my haste Within me I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. So that's two verses, and all he said was, my turn. You see what I'm saying? It's a lot of poetry. He's just saying, I'm going to talk now. Um, Do you not know this from old, since man was placed in the earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment. So what's his main thesis statement? You're going to get yours. So here's the wicked. Here's the wicked. They, that's the beginning. That's the end. Let's give them, they may start with prosperity, but they will not get here with prosperity. If that's your scale. So zero, you're poor, 10, you're rich. They're doing good. He's saying, not going to happen. They don't end up here high on the ladder. Guaranteed. Of course, what's Job saying the whole time? I'm not wicked. What? He's saying he's not wicked, but he's really going to have to, in some way, say that this is not true. So let's just keep going. That'll make sense as we go. So verse 6. Though his height mount up to the heavens, and his head reached the clouds, and whose head and whose height? The wickeds. In this case, it's the wickeds. All right. He will perish forever like his own dung. You know what dung is. All right. So you feel the boldness of the text. All right. So far as speaking, you know what dung is, right, Abby? Um, yeah, I do. 
You do? Okay, good. I saw. I was like, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's poop. Okay. He will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let go of it and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of the viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down. Now give it back in that sense. It's not generosity. What, what, what is it? It's taken or it's he just can't hold it in whatever way. He doesn't get to keep it. And it will not, he will not swallow it down. From the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment. For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized the house that he did not build. So, okay, do you see how I'm saying about the poetry? How many things has really been said so far? One. Just one thing. And what is that? The wicked, won't prosper. The wicked do not prosper. That, that's his only message. He's going to say it in a very, very poetic way. Um, and this is, poetry's fun. It, it make, paints a picture. You really see the, the art. Um, the idea is very clear, but that is all he is saying is the wicked are not going to prosper. Because he knew no contentment in his belly. So we're in verse 20. He will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There was nothing left after he had eaten. Therefore, his posterity, prosperity, sorry, those are two different words. His prosperity will not endure, and the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him to fill his belly to the full. God will send his burning anger against them and rain it upon him into his body. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Very specific. <laughs> Terrors come upon him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. There is the wicked man's I'm sorry, this is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. So, again, all of that to say, the one simple idea, um, the wicked do not prosper. And if they do, what happens? It won't last. God will take it away. So my paraphrase version, the wicked may start with riches, health, Posterity, but in the end they will lose everything. And of course, the reason so far of saying this, just like Job has done. The wicked may start with riches. Just like Job. 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 They will start with riches, health, and posterity, but in the end they will lose everything just like Job has done. Now Job's gonna respond. So let's uh Let's follow through with Joe. So, hey, we read a whole chapter. Report that tonight. 25. You already counted. You already counted? Oh. Hey, this is a good start. Hey, we might do all of Joe tonight. So. You get to count all of us. Hey, so I read it out loud, and you read it in your mind. Yeah. Double, right? That's double. That is, that is double. Okay. No, no, whatever you're saying, don't say it. <laughs> Oh, yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. What did she say? 
so anytime we're reading out loud, if everyone listening is yeah. looking down and reading it too, that that's exponential. What if we all read it out loud at the same time? Brian, Brian, it's 25. It's 10 to the 25. Y'all seen those memes on Facebook where it has an idea and a picture of a, like a neuro brain scan, and then a, a better idea and a brighter brain scan, and then the third idea and it's mind blown. That's what just happened, guys. That's what just happened. Make is good. We just justify it. I'll change the rules to get the goal. Is that what you're asking me to do? Just gotta justify. Oh, good. All right. So let's see. So the main point: the wicked don't prosper. If they do, it's short-lived. So here's how Job responds. And Job answered, "Keep listening to my words, and let this be your comfort." So we're in 21. That was verse two. Bear with me, and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. You know, they're having a very, you know, level-headed conversation here. As for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled. Lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power. What is Job saying? You're wrong. Why, why, why does, how does he know? He's like, you see that guy? And that one? The dude over there. And it's not just that I know this. Job sees this and what's his feeling? How, how does he respond? He says, shuddering. Seizes his flesh. He says, I am dismayed i mean do you relate you see people like you know someone is an absolute jerk they're a terrible person and then it's like the heavens open and a blessing pours out on them that's unbelievable you ever seen that happen i've seen that happen <laughs> happens far too often you just think honestly every time a hollywood actor makes a blockbuster movie and they're a terrible person and they got paid a billion dollars okay not that much but they got paid a lot of money it's like what are those people? You know the attitude. I mean, this is, I'm not saying it's necessarily good, but there's there's truth in it. Like, what is, what is an evil person? Or you know what they've done. You know how they've cheated. They've stole. They, they lied on that application. They lied on that review. They're doing their paperwork at work, and they fudged the numbers. And, hey, you got promotion. Their numbers are so good. They're not. Why are they prospering, seemingly? They're, they're prospering as the fruit of their wickedness. If you cheat on your taxes, you get more money back. So Maybe may have a bad long-term plan, right? But uh, there's people get away with that all the time. There's lots of things like that that happen. And Job's saying, he shudders. Their offspring, verse 8, are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. What's he getting at there? Some of these people, their prosperity is inherited. They, they, in wickedness, they build up wealth. They get to keep the wealth. They live to an old age. They give this wealth of wicked means to their grandchildren. And they get to see it all because they're healthy. They live long. Job's saying, I see the wicked prosper all the time. Their houses are safe from fear. And no rod of God upon them. Now what's the rod of God? Is this one wrath, punishment, all of these things could be what's going on? He's just saying that that is not hanging out at this man's house. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves but does not miscarry. So he's saying like, you look at the, even, even this guy's livestock are fruitful. And he's a terrible person. They send out their little boys like a flock, and their children dance. Now, in their culture, of course, little boys being like a flock means what? Got a, lot of got a whole bunch of them, and in their world, that was what? That's prosperity. That, that's prosperity. You are, you are the king if you got a flock of boys. 
mean, that is, you're a wealthy man. You're, you're, your livelihood is guaranteed. You've got men. you got boys. I love my daughter. You know, she's just <laughs> they sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace. They go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that storm carries away? You say God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let him pay it out then, that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what they, for what do they care for the houses after them when the number of their months is cut off? Will any teach God knowledge? Seeing that he judges those who are on high. One dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure. He fell, his pell is full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, having neither tasted um, a pro- or having not tasted, ah, I can't read. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Which which two died? Well, one is rich prosperity. Where's he go? Because Sheol. The other is poor. Does without. Where's he go? That sounds like another book of the Bible. Anybody know? What's the guess? Ecclesiastes. That's the whole point of Ecclesiastes. It's all vanity. Build a huge kingdom. What happens? You die. You don't work at all. You suffer. You die. You're super smart. You die. And that's just Ecclesiastes. It's all. It's all. It's like it's all vanity. And I won't work out the logic there yet because that's the next sermon series. So I want to leave you, leave you in suspense. But uh, that'll be good, actually. <laughs> so anyway, um, I've already lost where it was. Verse 27. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked lived? Have you not asked those who travel the roads? And do you not accept their testimony that evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath? Who declares his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done? When he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The clods of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him. And those who go down before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings. There's nothing left of your answers but falsehood. In other words, Job walks around and says, I mean, the thing you just told me, give me an example. He just owns them. I just, yeah, I mean, so far, so far not smart enough to be owned. But had he been, there would have been a touche. <laughs> right. It's like when you use that, just give me evidence. Give me one study. It's like, I got seven. You want to read one of them? You know, it's like, have you, like, ignored everything life has taught you? I mean, Jesus uses a similar lingo in the New Testament. But, I mean, who's the rainfall on? Everybody. Good or bad. God treats them the same. And so Job is really saying something Jesus is going to say <clears throat> later. And so let's see how we summarize that. Go take a look at the world, and you will see that the wicked do prosper. Also, they're saved from the day of wrath have wealth for their healthy children and prosper all their days. So it's really the opposite of what he's saying. We see this all the time. All right, now for the sake of time, we got like four minutes, so let's let's fly. Verse 22, chapter 22, Eliphaz speaks up. Can a man be profitable to God? Well, I mean, technically we know the answer to that question. That's not a false question. Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. 
Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? It is for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you. Is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing. Has he? Stripped naked of their clothing. When did Job do that? You've given no water for the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man of power possessed the land, and the favored men lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness, so that you cannot see, and a flood of waters cover you. Now, what did he just do? He's making stuff up. We know Job hadn't done any of this. And the guy who's talking Eliphaz, when did he see Job do any of these things? So he's either just bold-faced lying, or, I mean, like, what would possess you? What would possess you to do this? So maybe this is Eliphaz detailing a list of the kind of things that would make God do this to Job. These are the things. Like, surely you, this is what you did. Right. Because this is, this is, if you did those things, this is what would happen. Right. So, if A plus A equals B and B equals C, then... Or, or there's smoke, there's fire. What's that? Exactly. Hey, good illustration. I like that. Quacks like a duck. Quacks like a duck. Gotcha. So you put together. It's like a duck. It's on fire. Exactly. That's exactly where I was going. Okay, so, all right, for the sake of time... Let's jump over to, uh, well, let's, let's see. So, Eliphaz, Job, you have disobeyed the basic commandments of the Lord to take care of the poor. Therefore, God is punishing you. Repent while there is still hope. So you go through there. See, he tells him to repent. He doesn't really say anything new after that. Same, same idea. So let's jump over to chapter 23, Job's response. If you read that real quick in your head, though, you can still count the chapter. All right, verse 20, chapter 23, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. So what's what's uh, Job saying here? If he had the chance to talk to God, he knows God would agree. With he knows God would agree with him. Why can Job say that so boldly? He knows God. Well, he knows God. He knows God's character. He knows what he hasn't done. He knows he's innocent. His conscience is clear. In fact, when he gives his big defense, we won't get there tonight. It'll start in chapter 26. When he gives his big defense, he's going to give a list of just how clear his conscience is. And it's like, oh, okay, well, I don't relate to Job in every category there. But uh, congratulations, Job. You're doing great. Um, let's see. How much time we got? Oh, it's time. All right. So, so Job spends two chapters saying that. Let's just summarize it here. Wrong. I've seen many forsake the law of God and go completely unpunished. You say that never happens. Open, wait, did we do that already? No, you open your eyes, it happens all around. Okay, that was 23 and 24. Do 22. Fill those blanks in. We did do 22. Yeah. You, did. you did in a hurry. Yeah, we did in a hurry. You have disobeyed the basic commandments of the Lord. Take care of the poor. Therefore, God is punishing you. Repent while there is still hope. All right, let me give you the summary. You'll see Bildad's speech is only six verses long, and technically the first one is the setup, so it's only five verses long. I'll give you the short version of Bildad's speech. Um, you are a maggot. Maggot. Thank you, Bildad, for the constructive use of language. Nothing useful at all in chapter 25, other than we can say, all right, Job's friends are jerks. Um, that, that's all we get from chapter 25. All right, so Job is now going to spend like almost the rest of the book defending himself. Then, well, Elihu shows up. We'll, we'll cover that. 
but he's going to defend himself a lot. Let's real quick, let's just fill in these basic points. We know these, but it's good to see these reminded in, in the book of Job. And it's just good to state out loud sometimes. God does allow the wicked to prosper. Um, that happens every day. The wicked prosper. And the converse of that, God does allow the righteous to suffer. We see this all the time. Um, we have plenty of New Testament examples. And we need to get away from this tendency of seeing someone suffering and assuming that it's their fault. I mean, people suffer for their own stupidity. That happens, definitely. But there's really no reason for us to just assume that. Uh, a lot of suffering is at God's hand for no other purpose than to show God's glory in some way. Just like the man born blind, God's asked Jesus, who sinned to make this boy blind? And the answer was, no, he's blind so I can get some glory when I heal him. That's what it's all about. And so Job is a portrait of God's glory in the end, and that's the particular thing God is asking him to do. In the end, God will judge the world and set all things right. This is the Christian hope. That's what we mean by the redemption. The, the day of the Lord is coming. God is going to punish all evil, and he is going to right all wrongs, and he is going to fix the world, and we will live with him in a perfect recreation of the earth. We must have a view of life that includes eternity. That's the reason we have hope. That's ultimately how Job was able to make sense of life. was by knowing that, you know, I might not reap what I sow today. But in the end, Eliphaz's first comment wasn't wrong. We do reap what we sow. It's just we have to have a long-term eternity in the factor version of how we apply that, that statement. So yes, long view of eternity. All right, last, uh, second to last, living for success can misalign our view of God's justice. Now I really wanted to spend some time unpacking that. We're out of time. The short version is the prosperity gospel, or in converse, this retribution gospel, God always punishes the wicked, or converse, God always blesses the righteous is a version of straight pragmatism. There is a way you can live to guarantee and produce success in life. Any version of that is short-sighted. It's nothing wrong with being efficient and trying to make good use of your time. The basic ideas of pragmatism are fine, but if your worldview is success-based, you will get misaligned from the gospel. And that's really what's going wrong with the friends is they've created a vision where it's all gotta be about success and prosperity and health now which is why the, your best life now is very pragmatic and practical on those points. That's exactly the worldview that's happening. That will misalign your view of God's justice because it makes it about now instead of the coming judgment. Last one, my purpose in life is to display God's glory in the particular way he has ordained. So for Job, the way he's going to display God's glory is he's going to lose everything and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. That was God's plan for him. So I, I asked a group of guys one time. We were having this question of, well, I mean, doesn't God always want to heal you? I was like, well, if you include the resurrection, yes. If you don't include the resurrection, I make no guarantees. And then to follow up the question, I just said, if, if God showed up, I might have said this Sunday. I don't remember. It sounds really familiar. So I've said this recently. I get confused sometimes. If God showed up to you and super clarity very clearly and said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you your purpose, your calling specific. I don't know how many of you would like to have like, out of the mouth of God directly. This is the specific task I want you to do. I mean, that would be glorious, right? Yeah. And if he showed up and said, here's what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to get cancer. It'll be untreatable and you're going to die a very slow, painful death. And you're going to sing my praises the whole time. And we would go, Plan B. Plan, plan B. <laughs> Never mind. But which makes Paul so unique because God said to to do it in Damascus. He says, "Go tell him this." Oh right, right, Ananias. Show that. Yeah, go show because I'm going to show him all the ways he's going to suffer for my name's sake. So Paul, that was. Paul knew ahead of that. I love when he's going to Jerusalem and he calls in the elders. He's like, I know, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen down there, except that the, everywhere the Holy Spirit testifies that there's chains and punishment and possibly death. And they're like, well, don't go. And he's like, no, 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 no. That's what I'm called to do. 
Holy Ghost. That's loyalty to the Lord, and that's what the book of Job is trying to show us. Let's have that level of loyalty. When he's bit by the poisonous snake there in Malta, and he just shakes it yeah. off. Because you know, I haven't been there wrong yet. So I'm, I'm in there wrong. There's no yeah. 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 I know. I know what the end looks like. My favorite John Piper sermon was on that and how uh, John. I mean, how uh, Paul was um, immortal until yeah. he got to Rome and testified before Caesar. Okay. So I mean, technically, all of us are immortal until we die. <laughs> until we die, and God knows what that moment is. So technically, it's not possible to die at a different moment. But anyway, that's that's on the side. So what's up? Uh, question. See many forsake God's law and go completely unpunished. Thank you, Jim. Oh, okay. He he's a portrait of faithfulness to the Lord, regardless of the circumstances. No matter what God's plan is, Job is taking it, like it or not. I mean, he doesn't like it most of the time, but he's taking it, and he's going to honor the Lord even when he's mad at the Lord. So he's, there's a sense in which he's patient. There's a sense in which he's not. You know, it depends on how you, how you ask the question. So anyway, it, it'll get better. we got more. It'll eventually wrap up nicely in 42. But a few more weeks will be there. Let's pray. God, we thank you for tonight. Pray that you bless our study of Job. Bless our, bless our experience of the word. I pray that um, as we read these things and think about these things, that they wouldn't just be facts. Um, but they would shape our worldview, the way we interpret our life. As we see suffering, as we experience suffering, as we walk with those who do, I pray that we wouldn't be callous, but that we would recognize that um, the innocent oftentimes do suffer, and this is part of your plan. And in some way, it's all going to be worth it in the end. A glory will be revealed that will make all these things seem trivial compared to the eternal weight of glory that's coming. God, just give us a sense of that glory, a hope for that glory, a desire to see that glory, and a steadfast assurance while we wait for it. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.